on Rebuilders today, we are looking at what's coming up in the month of October. The reason we're doing this is I cannot think of another time where so many consequential things that are going to affect the culture, the world, history going forward are happening in one month. So we're going to dig into all of them today, give you an understanding um, of what's happening and perhaps where we're going. Yeah. Well, you can head to rebuilders.co to find out a bit more and to subscribe to our mailing list and we look at some of the resources and just have a bit of a chat about the episode as well. So let's jump into it. Welcome to Rebuilders. My name is Daniel and I'm here with Mark Sayers. How are you um, this this morning? I'm, I'm well. Yeah. We're very well color coordinated today. I know. Yeah. For our audio listeners, check out the YouTube video because we've yeah. got this kind of maroon Matching. navy hue vibe going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, you'll notice that my uh, I'm not Liddy. Um, Liddy is not- What? <laughs> shocked. Liddy isn't with us today. Um, she's at home resting, um, so we're thinking of her. But today we are going to do something not different. We've done it before, but yeah. we're just going to take a little bit of a shift from our um, often discipleship or leadership-focused um, episodes and look at the news and what's happening around the world, uh, what's coming up that we should be aware of and um, there's ways to think about that. So, Mark, do you want to just kind of set this up for us? Mm. Well, I think, yeah, as you've rightly pointed out that, you know, what we do on Rebuild is, is talk about leadership and discipleship where we look at institutions and mm. we thought with yeah. maybe Lydia off today, we've got an excuse to talk about a bunch of things happening. But it just it just struck me last week how with everything going on in the world, October into early November, I can't remember a time hmm. when so many consequential things in the world which could set the direction uh, for the sort of next part of world history are yeah. happening. Yeah. Um, and in many ways, it seems like a bit of a pivot point in grey zone for regular listers. Mm-hmm. And so, I wanted to call this the hunt uh, I was, uh, the hunt for grey October, the hunt for grey zone October, playing off the Tom Clancy novel slash movie with Sean Connery. Which I unfortunately have not heard of or seen. Have you seen any Tom Clancy Movies. Oh, is that, is there some more? Is Jack Reacher? Is that Tom Clancy? Or no, Jack. Someone? He did Jack Ryan. Jack Ryan. So Harrison Ford was your classic, yeah, okay. Uh, okay. you know, character. There's clear and present danger and all that. They're actually quite fascinating movies because they're sort of like he he was sort of almost that post Cold War. Who's the enemy? Like in one, it's the yeah, sort of yeah, okay. you know Colombian sort of narco uh, gangsters, and then another one, it's like um, the you know what's r- post Russia. Um, but so he's here kind of riding through the Cold War times. He's he writing sort of the end, yeah, end of the Cold War. Yeah, okay. Fascinating fact. He wrote The Hunt for Red October and the Navy began to, or the FBI began to like, or Navy intelligence began to like surveil him because they thought he possibly was stealing secrets because it was so accurate. All right. But I think he was like an insurance salesman who sold insurance <laughs> to old Navy commanders or something. And so he got all this intel. Oh, but then bizarrely, all these like, um, sort of like intelligence, military, industrial types end up loving his books. Yeah, yeah. Cause like that's what the sort of character is like, like Harrison Ford's like a, you know, mid level CIA guy. So then by the end of it, you're just rocking around Langley CIA headquarters just with open access as, as Tom Clancy and sort of advising them on foreign policy and stuff. But I think you're thinking on, in of the books. 
No, this is in life. This, this is, is in real life. life. Yeah, oh, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, um, uh, but I think you're also thinking yeah. that um, Jim from The Office was recast in- Oh, yeah. yeah Jack Ryan. Jack Ryan. Yeah. Which yeah. is not Tom Clancy. It's it's written so. But it's-, it's yeah, okay. I watched a bit of it, but just hard to take Jim from the office as. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. CIA I watched it as always like super buff, well, like yeah, CIA guy versus nerdy office. Yeah, <laughs> well, he's sort of like yeah. There's bits where he's like annoyed or he's you know in, you know interrogating a, yeah. a terrorist. And have you ever seen any of his um, lip sync battle stuff as well? No, that's again a whole other facet of what's his name, John um, Krasinski. Krasinski, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we're not bless you, John. Um, we're not well, here the, for you. No. But, so, what was the title you were going with? Well, I, I wanted to go with the hunt for Grey's on October, but it doesn't really work. Yeah, I look. I'm a fan of. Oh, I'm not enough. <laughs> I, I did propose Oktoberfest. Yes, I'm not sure. Uh, it's, if that it's has winning. the same vibes that we. It's winning over the hunt for Grey's on October. <laughs> put Oktoberfest. It to, put it to a vote. Let us know. Yes. Um, all right. Well. Do you want to know um, what are we, why why is this a significant significant month? Well, I just think there's a bunch of sort of trend lines in the world that are almost converging at this moment, um, and you know there's a lot happening in the world geopolitically, economically, mm. and there's a bunch of decisions and I think consequential things are going to happen over the next few weeks, um, mm. you know, into the beginning of November, um, which I think are just going to sort of set part of, I think, where we're going from here. We'll get yeah. a sense of where we're going in the midst of this grey zone unknownness. Yeah, okay. All right. Do you want to kick us off? Yes. We have a list. With our top of our list, um, a, a country we're probably familiar with by now. Russia? Russia, Ukraine war. Yes. Correct. So I think basically we've hit sort of a – a, a turning point in the war in Ukraine. Um, obviously, we did an episode on the war in Ukraine early on and, you know, it's caused tremendous implications, obviously, for the people of Ukraine and Russia, but also, you know, has created economic effects in the world, geopolitical effects, supply chain effects, energy mm -hmm. effects. Um, and, you know, we had, um, you know, recently in the last few weeks, a quite significant sort of Ukrainian advance where, um at the beginning of the war, you know, when we were watching the war in the first days, you know, you had sort of, you know, Russian, con you know, sort of advanced con light infantry, sort of, con you know, uh, light armor infantry convoys going into sort of Kiev, mm. trying to take the airport. Didn't happen. At that stage, we were thinking the whole thing was going to fall. Yep. Uh, but now you've had this quite, uh, you know, significant Ukrainian advance um, and the pushing back of, you know, Russian positions in the east of the country. Which has caused, you know, uh, Putin to have to pivot. Mm. And Putin has pivoted doing something that Russia has done only a few times in history. Um, you know, one was uh, in World War One and World War Two, where he's entered into a partial mobilization, uh, which in many ways is increasingly looking like a full mobilization of anyone with military experience. Yeah. You know, males 18 to 35, although they're picking up people who are older, um, you know, who must enter the war. Up till now, the war has very much been fought by people from um, Russia's regions, outer regions, um, the East and the Caucasus, and also by many um, really ethnic minorities. Um, okay. you know, uh, people of different, the different sort of uh, cultures of Russia, which come from Mongol descent, and then in the Caucasus, um, a number of the sort of Muslim republics and Tatars and so on. So in many ways, they've been sort of 
bearing the you know bearing the sort of weight of fighting this war. Yeah. But what this has done is your sort of urban elites in places like Moscow and St. Petersburg all of a sudden now are drawn into the conflict, and we've seen huge amounts of young men leaving the country on planes, crossing borders, massive uh, uh, loss of population. So that's going to have a significant effect. Um, I think it was Mark Galliotti made an interesting point. Um, the Russia expert, where he said, what this says to us is that Putin is more worried about pleasing and keeping on side those to the right of him, his sort of right-wing mm. nationalist, than he is with his sort of those to the more liberal left side of him. Yeah, yeah He okay. more wants to keep sort of aggressive generals on side and people in the security services than he does, you know, an IT professionals in St. Petersburg. So I think this tells us a couple of things that – Putin realizes, you know, so far this has sort of been called a special operation. They haven't declared it as a war. Obviously, when you declare it as a war, you as a whole nation have to bear the brunt of that. When it's just a special operation, you don't have to. So this is going to have significant political implications for Putin going forward. Mm -hmm. And the mobilization, you know, brings it home. Um, you know, Russia began to sort of withdraw from its incursion into Afghanistan uh, when, you know, the, the increasing sort of feedback from mothers and wives and girlfriends who had lost um, you know, sons and husbands and boyfriends on the battlefields in, in Afghanistan, that started to have a, a political cost. And I think we're going to start to see that. Hmm. Um, but I think that when you hear about a, you know, significant Ukrainian advance, what is not necessarily going to happen is Putin's not going to go, oh, wow, oh, I gave it a shot and I've lost, you know, and, you know, let's, let's go back into his shell that this has, you know, we don't know exactly which way this will go, but, you know, people talking, you know, is this going to have a political cost for Putin in terms of could he lose his leadership? Um, if he does lose his leadership, I mean, he spent a lot of the last sort of six, seven years coup-proofing himself yeah, yeah. with how he set up the security forces. But also, too, he uh, is more likely to be, I think, replaced by someone even to the right of him. Hmm. Um, you know, okay. people like Patrushev or the head of the Wagner group, Prigozhin, I think his name is, um, who are more more hawkish than him. So also, if Russia did go into some sort of collapse, that's also going to have significant geopolitical implications. Um, you know, who takes power? What will they be like? What will that, that mean for the world in terms of Russia, mm -hmm. you know, commanding mm -hmm. second biggest nuclear arsenal in the world, incredible yeah. uh, resources and so on? Um, you've also seen uh, in, in you know, the annexation of a number of the regions, which you know, we just got the results in today, shock, horror, Russia. They've decided by yeah, yeah. 99% to stay with, stay, uh, to become part of Russia. Quickly, who, was, who was facilitating those um, uh, elections? The, yeah, elections. Referendum. Referendum. Referen yeah, referenda. Referenda. Is a was that a, what, is that a Moscow-led thing? Or a yes, yeah, 100%. Yes. Yeah, so, okay. I mean, it's claimed that it's the local sort of, um, you know, Russian-aligned commanders of those regions, but very much the sort of apparatus of the Russian state has been behind them. So, um, you know, and all have amazingly, in one of the biggest electoral shocks in history, by about 99% chosen to become part of Russia. But what that mm -hmm. does is, is it extends Russia's security umbrella so if that is now Russian territory, that's different than if Ukraine is attacking Ukrainian territory. And while Russia has said that, you know, if you they're threatening nuclear response, if therefore they're now seeing that as part of Russia as of today. Uh, so they're seeing that if you know, Ukraine or the West attacks those parts, they will respond with nuclear weapons. Right, okay. Now, okay. Um, 
you know, and and probably that would be something like a tactical nuclear weapon, and which is a smaller nuclear weapon, which is still pretty devastating uh, on on um, the battlefield. However, um, you know, there's different opinions on whether that will happen, but it's sort of now in the realms of possibility. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, the second thing is, if that's not going to happen, I think what we're going to see is an escalation of Putin increasingly desperate trying new things. And you know, we've just also seen in the news overnight the. Uh, what was described as unprecedented damage to the gas pipelines that go from Russia to uh, Europe, um, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, both have been significantly damaged overnight. Yeah. The Danish Prime Minister and the Swedish Foreign Minister both come out saying, you know, it looks like sabotage. Uh, so, you know, you're going to see more stuff like that, um, which then sort of moves into the um, – well, just a, a couple of implications around why I think this is going to be really – uh, so I'll put three implications why I think October is going to be significant. We're going to see which direction the war is going. Yep, and yep. you're going to see a change in Russian tactics. They're going to take it up a notch uh, or possibly collapse. All of that will have significant implications for the world and particularly for Europe. Secondly, you're going to see increasing kinds of – sorry, I guess part B of the first point is you're going to see increasing escalation, you know, yep. whether that's sabotage or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the second thing is the energy war component of this for Europe. Um, winter hasn't begun, and you know, already you're seeing the massive escalation of energy prices in the world mm. because of the effects mm. of this war. And we don't know, you know, what that's going to look like in Europe. Classically, in sort of political science, when the cost of basic things like food and energy goes up, there's increased civil unrest and political unrest in countries. Uh, and you're going to have a very difficult winter for Europe coming up, and we haven't really entered it that. You know, Europe has had some quite unseasonably warm weather, yeah. but I think as that enters, that's going to be, you know, a significant influence outside of just Europe, and not just in Europe, all across the world. Yes, yes. And then the third thing is Russia did provide a kind of security umbrella for a number of its sort of neighbours, and it's interesting that we've just seen a uh, the hostilities and, and conflict which we had a couple of years ago between Azerbaijan and Armenia, which on the southern part of Russia, both former parts of the Soviet Union, uh, they've been fighting again and Azerbaijan has entered into Armenian territory. So you're looking at a war kicking off there. We also had um, some border skirmishes on the Kyrgyzstani-Turkmenistani border. So you could see not just Russia sort of take off, but really see war start to break out in those regions and yeah, spill okay, over. Okay. The Serbian prime minister, I think, said a couple of days ago that, you know, he said we're two months away from a significant, you know, global conflict again yeah, well. or world war in Europe has, you know, the potential <coughs> to spill over. Russia's talking about creating its own foreign legion. The Ukrainians have a foreign legion, you know, of Serbs and Belarusians and different people who want to fight. Yeah, um, yeah. There was even some reports today. Well, the, increasingly the Russians are using Iranian drones and, um, you know, there was an Iranian drone sort of post operating in Ukraine that was hit by the Ukrainians, you know, and this claims that there were Iranians there. You know, do you see somewhere like Iran get dragged into this conflict? Yeah, yeah. So there's tremendous possibilities for things to spill over. But I think what we're going to see is the war as it's been up till now, you're going to see escalations, whatever that looks like, and I think cr- increased unrest. So the next... I think couple months, um, in particular October, is going to be an absolute turning point. Also, people want to move before winter. It's going to get very cold and um, you know muddy, and uh, you know yeah. So incredibly decisive months coming up uh, in the war in Ukraine. Yeah, well, just a quick one. I know um, maybe two two weeks ago or so, we started to see this kind of turn in the war. Like it's almost yeah. like 
Ukraine starting to take back mm. um, territory and 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 this is kind of prior to Putin's mm. announcement. Is it what's it, like? Yeah, is there, is that still happening? Yes. Is that is the concern just about now the heading into those other regions that are now pro Moscow? Yes. Um, what's yeah? Is, what what are we expecting in that? So. Yeah, you're continuing to see Ukrainian advances. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Ukraine's sort of stated war objectives is to take back all the territory. Yeah, okay. Um, so, uh, you know, that was part of um, Ukraine pre-2014. Um, so there's an inevitable clash here yeah, coming okay. between Ukraine and it is having, you know, it's obviously getting significant sort of uh, weapons, both um, supply and training by okay. NATO and other nations. Um, so... There's this sort of imbalance in terms of supply and logistics. Uh, and Russia, though, has a very different way of fighting a war, mm, um, mm. you know, and historically used large amounts of just you know, sending troops forward and then massive artillery. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, you're going to see an intensification potentially yeah, uh, of okay. the war going forward. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. So that's um, updating Russia. Uh, next up, uh, the Brazil election. Yeah, the Brazil election is, is something I've been sort of following of late. And, you know, this is, you know, people talk about, you know, you think forward to say 2024 and the next US uh, yeah. presidential election. Yeah. And obviously what happened on January the 6th and, uh, you know, a lot of uh, conversation in the United States and around the world around, you know, the acceptance of electoral results and so on. Um, uh, and, and many of these sort of things are swirling around um, in, in Brazil, uh, which is becoming, you know, extremely polarized in many similar ways to okay. the United States. Uh, basically, you, the current Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro, is facing his sort of, you'd almost say, nemesis, the uh, head of the or leader of the Workers' Party, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, commonly known as Lula. Um, so it's the sort of heavyweight bout between Bolsonaro and Lula. Lula um, hmm. was formerly president and oh, okay. um, went through a period where, you know, Brazil did actually grow economically for a period there. There was sort of a high point for Brazil in both hosting the Rio Olympics and the World Cup. Okay, so this Brazil. is recent. This recently. is recent, yeah, yeah okay. in the sort of coming into the, the early to mid-2000s. Yeah. Um, and so Brazil went through this this thing where it was, you know, emerging as a significant, you know, uh, you know, mid-level, you know, powerful country and and it's a country with a significant population mm -hmm. um became you know and you had a, a, an uptick as, as you sort of had uh development occur and 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 you know incomes went up and so on sure. uh but then the country you know sort of got embroiled um in you know a significant corruption scandal uh, which was known as operation car wash and you know different sort of corruption uh allegations came out against you know lula and the workers party um some people in Brazil see some of these as politicized. Yeah. Um, and then what eventually happened was that Lula was placed in prison. Um, so you imagine in this way. It's like if, if Trump or Biden had placed one of the others or Hillary Clinton had been placed in prison. Yeah. And then had been released and then you had the rematch. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, in yeah, 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 yeah. So that's Lula. So Lula, um, interestingly too, just from a church perspective, Lula um, initially sort of had some engagement with the evangelical community and you had some evangelicals vote for Lula, but then he was replaced by his sort of protege, Dilma, I think the last name is Rousseff. Um, and then, you know, you had this uh, corruption scandal, you had a rise in crime, uh, so there was a sense of um, significant, particularly amongst the sort of emerging middle classes, that there was this sort of uptick in crime. 
and you had this significant electoral backlash as uh, this figure, Jair Bolsonaro, had sort of come with a lot of connections to uh, Brazil's sort of uh, army and military establishment, and also police, and he's more, you know, as people described him as the sort of Trump of the tropics, uh, you know, he came to power. And, um, you know, in many ways, this is the polarization of Brazilian politics and it echoes some of the stuff from the previous Cold War and, mm-hmm. and previous sort of military uh, leadership. But in some ways also, it's also being sort of uh, shaped with its own sort of take on the American culture wars that are going on. Um, and uh, so they meet um, for, for an election. Uh, I think it begins at the beginning of October, maybe October the 2nd. I think it's for a little period. Okay. Uh, but I think what's really interesting is this sort of global wave of populists. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro was a populist. In some ways also Lula was a populist, but you're seeing this sort of battle between the left and right populism at play here. And it's going to be really interesting because there's many people speculating that if, if Bolsonaro loses the election, he may not accept the results. Yeah, and in yeah, some okay. ways, with with Trump, he's already um, uh, you know questioning that it could be sort of like faked or whatever. And then you so you've got these two candidates: one who's been in prison, and there's sort of a corruption haze over one; other one, there's sort of an anti-democratic haze over people. Are, 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 you know, you've already Bolsonaro was actually stabbed during his electoral uh, campaign previously, and I think so, uh, someone was actually killed from the Workers' Party. Uh, I think uh, just recently. So there's also the threat of violence is sort of hanging over this election, and I do wonder as well um, that in some ways, you know, some of the tactics that may be adopted, as you see in the Brazilian election, could flow into particularly American politics um, going forward. There's been a lot of conversations between sort of. Um, you know, both sides of Brazilian politics and America yeah, yeah. and there's sort of, you know, some shared populations going backwards and forwards. Uh, so I think particularly for South America, some of those things where South America is the home of populism, um, it really sort of, you know, created as a political form, but you're seeing sort of the modern versions of this, you know, and you're seeing this in in Chile, you had a recent, um, you know, attempted assassination of um, uh, Kirchner, the sort of uh, vice president in, in Argentina by a group who, a sort of alt-right um, mm-hmm. and then you've got a classic way people are wondering if even that was faked you know so a huge I think this election is going to be you know one of the most important elections this year but also you know we're going to see the continued future direction of what sort of particularly right-wing populism looks in the world and this global movement yeah yeah okay yeah okay I was going to ask what's the kind of global impacts of this but well i mean i think i think one of the things that are really interesting is you have seen whilst there's very local realities in a thing like the brazilian election and you don't want to just like the worst way to read global politics is to look at it through the prism of american domestic politics Mm. but then there has been this sort of weirdly of these right-wing nationalists there's a globalist dimension you know Mm. so you see people like you know victor orban um modi in india you know, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, there's sort of communication between them and they saw themselves as a sort of forefront of vanguard pushing back on what they see as this sort of globalist uh, liberal agenda in in the world. Um, so I think it's 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 of international importance because Brazil is a very important country. Yeah. Um, I also think it's it's interesting for the church as well because just as you've seen the church polarized, I mean, Reuters had an article today about, you know, how this is also causing polarization in the evangelical church. Yeah, okay. um, so I think it's also an, another example alongside the United States how churches can become extremely polarized when you're in the sort of milieu of populist politics. Mm, mm-hmm. 
Right. Okay. So, gone Russia Brazil election. Next up, we've got China. China. Kind of dancing around the world here. Dancing around the world. Uh, China is extreme, all eyes on China in October because what we have is the 20th Party Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. Okay. So, China's obviously not a democracy. And um, what you have is you have these party congresses where the Chinese Communist Party, which is the party which runs China, has these congresses. Now, to understand what's going to happen is you need to understand a little bit of history. Please. Uh, so, you had in uh, Chinese history in, in the 20th century, probably the most significant figure in Chinese political history, which is Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong was the leader of China. And he sort of, you know, was the guerrilla fighter um, and emerged to sort of create the modern Chinese state as we understand it, led the Chinese party. In many ways, you could argue he invented modern guerrilla warfare um, and then led China on this quest to become, you know, sort of this, you know, world power. Um, He, near the end, um, you know, lived through some quite traumatic times. You know, one was the sort of uh, agricultural um, and product economic sort of uh, central command Soviet style politics he put in play where he, you know, sort of created one of the worst famines where tens of millions of people died. And, you know, more people died from Mao's hand than Stalin and and Hitler. Um, And then also he presided over a period of tremendous cultural tumult where, in many ways, there were sort of forces moving against him in his own party and he unleashed the young in what's known as the Cultural Revolution. And so you had this massive ideological culture war. You could also call, call it a civil war. And he released these young red guards. And so it was this, this period of tremendous sort of chaos. Mao passed and then it went into similar what happened in the Soviet Union um, when Stalin died and you had the rise of Khrushchev. You went into this period where after this tremendous chaos, there was sort of a consolidation. And the party actually released a sort of very obscurely titled paper, I can't remember what it was called, almost apologising for the Cultural Revolution. Right. And the sort of reformist, you know, and look, he's a reformer. He still was a communist and <laughs> leader of the Communist Party. Uh, but a figure named Deng Xiaoping came in and he wanted to stop this happening in China again. And, you know, in Chinese politics, there's very much this sort of, you know, understanding that chaos is something to be avoided. China's struggled through tremendous periods of chaos in the past and and almost politically, theologically has this idea of sort of, you know, when there's peace in heaven, you know, peace on earth is linked to peace in heaven. Sure. Um, and uh, they created this system where you could not have another cult of personality uh, another dictator to just lead for life. Yeah. So he didn't bring in democracy, but he did two things. Number one, he brought began to bring in market reforms. So he changed the economy and the expansion of China as a modern day economic powerhouse, as we understand it, really began with Deng Xiaoping's reforms uh, that he began sort of at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s. Yeah, okay, I was going to ask. Okay. Yeah. yeah 70s, and, 80s. and China goes from you know, a, a sort of underdeveloped country to the economic juggernaut it is today. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, like a, a city, you know, like Shenzhen, you have these places which were like swamps, you know, in the early 80s. Yeah. So now these massive, I remember incredible- seeing like pictures of it was like Beijing or something like in the early 90s or something versus now. Yes. And it's just kind of this like low-lying kind of suburban type of thing oh. to this Huge city, skyscrapers. In- incredible. And and you've seen this this migration of um, 
people from the centre of the or inland in the country to the coastal cities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what that's also done is that changed the world because it integrated into the world this manufacturing base which could make things very cheap yeah. and this massive workforce of yeah. people who were going to work in in manufacturing that created offshoring so all of a sudden it was cheaper for an american or an australian or a british or a french manufacturer to get it made in china than yeah. to be made in those countries yeah. and in many ways that sort of you know created some of the populist backlash that we were just talking about where mm -hmm. the rust belt in say the united states you know many of those jobs were lost which then ended up going from Democrat to voting Republican happened because of offshoring. Um, and it also, it made everything cheap. You know, if you look at say what a TV and VCR cost in 1988. Um, good year. Good, good year. It's, it's, it's not much different to say what's, what's actually, you know, like the price has been kept quite low and competitive on, on goods. I mean, our iPhones, everything are cheap because they've been made in China. Mm. Um, so, Deng Xiaoping introduced these incredible economic reforms, which didn't just change China, it changed the world. Yep. But the second thing he did was he created this system where you couldn't have one dictator, you had the party would vote on decide on a leader. Yeah, okay. And there'd be set terms. So, they could only, I think it was two terms they could, they could be leader for. So, you know, you had Zhang Zemin, Hu Jintao. When they finished that sort of two previous leaders, when they came to the end of their um, uh uh, you know, like period of, of office, they then were removed. And this was to stop another cult of personality, another dictator. Yeah. Just to clarify, there was only one party at this time. There wasn't- There's only one party. There's only one party. Yes. Yeah, good to know. Yeah, there's only one party. So then the party congress previously um, then- put to the the, the leader of, of the party. And it's interesting in China because it's not like there's a clear president. There's these different titles like the party president and core leader and and even okay. Deng Xiaoping moved around these different sort of um, leadership positions. Um, but effectively, what's going to happen at the 20th Party Congress, and it's already been prefaced, everyone's expecting this to happen, is that Xi Jinping will make himself the leader for life. So he's getting rid of the right. Okay. The um, like two-term kind of yes, two-term thing that Deng Xiaoping put in to stop a cult of personality, yeah. and very much so. You know, you're seeing the rebirth of the cult of personality with with Xi. I remember being at like I think it was Gold Coast Airport or Brisbane Airport in Queensland, and and walking past like the bookstore at the airport, and like on this display at the front, they had like these copies of Xi Jinping Thought, you know, which is just fascinating. Um, and so you're seeing him as almost portraying himself as that kind of leader. Now, a couple of things interesting about Xi is number one, um, you know, he's he's much more based around foreign policy and rebirthing of China and nationalism, and even linked, I would say, some ethnic elements of that. So you're almost creating a sort of ethno nationalism. We talked about civilizational states last week. That's yep. very much what um, Xi is building. And then secondly, um, he's not. In, into the economy in the same way. And actually also what's going to happen at this, um, he, he, he sees that the economy that was being built is creating a danger for China, that actually the sort of wealth and the <coughs> success of the reforms that Deng Xiaoping put into place is actually now has the potential to unseat the, the, the party. So what you've got to see is with communism and particularly in China, is Marxist-Leninism was all about the party staying in power. So, they yep. were prepared to change the economy, but they wanted to keep the party structure. So, he now sees that that's gone on long enough 
and that there's a threat to the party structure because people are getting more money, they're becoming more individualistic. This means China as an international power is going to be less competitive, less competitive militarily. You're seeing things like, you know, military, so education happening in primary schools, the banning of um, computer games, mm. uh, foreign luxury goods being banned. You're seeing this very much, this, this model he's building where China can be more assertive in the world. Yep. And in terms of foreign policy, you've seen this with Hong Kong. Uh, yep. You've seen this with Taiwan. And one of the sort of um, key things that Xi is doing is also staking his political legitimacy on the retaking of Taiwan, yes. um, which China sees as a province um, that needs to be reunified, even though Taiwan sees itself as a separate country. Yep, yep. So that happens and it, it's all on because, yeah, okay. you know, uh, US, you know, Joe Biden said the other day that they would defend militarily yeah, yeah. Um, Taiwan. But the other thing that's happening is what people need to understand is you're seeing Xi at the, at the Party Congress will also is moving out some of the more technocratic economic uh, sort of people, leaders who have been the architects of China's, you know, economic growth and he's moving more people who are more aligned with more traditional socialist sort of economy. So this is going to have a tremendous effect for the global economy. Right. Um, so the world that China built of cheap stuff that we've all enjoyed mm. <laughs> and the economic model of the world, that is going to change with what happens at this party congress. So Xi is not going anywhere. You know, you've got a assertive Chinese um, premier changing the economic model and geopolitically is much more assertive. Deng Xiaoping always had this thing of more hiding your strength and sort of being very patient. Yeah, and yeah, it was okay. almost like the comp competition with the United States was to wait uh, and, until China was really strong. But, but Xi's just racing ahead with that at this point in time. So Xi as, as leader for life and the new economic and geopolitical models he will adopt is going to have a significant effect for the entire world. Okay. So it's almost as if like the kind of the unrest we've been, it's been talked about and, and things that kind of the, the way the pot's been stirred over mm. the last few years and as people have talked about China, what's happening there. Mm. It's almost like there was a bit of a safety valve in that like RG could move on and someone yes. else could come up. But that's kind of like, no, that this, this trajectory could actually play out. Yes. Now that he, if he stays in. Oh, totally. It, <clears throat> yeah. It, it's going to be a very different world. Yeah. Um, okay. And also, you know, China China enters the culture wars. You know, China's, um, you know, like, you know, there's a lot of talk about Russia and Russiagate and Russia influencing the American election and Brexit and so on. You know, China's a much bigger player mm. and is already, you know, uh, across the world, um, you know, involved in things. So is the West. <laughs> like, um, but again, you're going to see increasingly competitive, contested global space. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, so moving from China uh, to the UK. Yeah. We spoke last week about the you know obvious sort of end of a era, the second Elizabethan era yep. with the passing of um, Queen uh, Elizabeth II and now the ascension of Charles the Charles the Third. Um, but in many ways, I think this also marks a tremendous you know grey zone moment for the United Kingdom. Mm, mm. Um, and uh, obviously, you know, the Queen has been this figure of stability, so that's come to an end, but also an incredibly challenging, um, you know, economic period for Britain as it, you know, through, moves through the implications of Brexit, uh, but also the energy crisis, which has hit the whole of, of you know, Europe and, and large parts of the world. 
But one one thing to note was this this week's really interesting. Or I was in the last ten days. You know, basically you've got your annual budget that governments have, and you know we have that in the Westminster system. And uh, the British government, new prime minister coming in after Boris um, left. Which honestly, Boris leaving over Partygate uh, seems like a lifetime ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like <laughs> Boris, like he's now it feels like he's ten years ago. So much has happened. Um, so. Uh, Liz Truss has come in and Liz Truss has replaced um, uh, Boris as the leader of the Conservative Party. Just a point on Liz Truss. Can I just make a I – yeah. I can do whatever I want. It's really good. I actually don't know much about her. Okay. Um, so, so feel, feel free to educate <laughs> So Liz Truss, um, uh, fascinatingly, uh, in her early 20s was – in a very different political space. So she's now the leader of the Conservative Party, but she was actually sort of an up-and-coming star in the, in the sort of third party in Britain, the Liberal Democrats. And what's so interesting is often one thing, what Liz Truss, I won't go into an entire history of Liz Truss here, but one of the things that Liz Truss shows us is one of the predictions you often hear is young people are believe this, so the inevitability is when they're adults, that change that they believe now at 21 will then happen to the entire culture at 45 yeah, yeah, yeah. when they yeah, move yeah, into power. Yeah. Uh, there's footage of Liz Truss in, I think it was in the 80s or early 90s at the Liberal Democrat uh, uh, conference and she's talking about abolishing the monarchy, like passionately yeah, okay. abolishing the monarchy. Fast forward to the royal funeral and there she is giving a biblical reading at the funeral of the Queen. And so Liz Truss goes on a political journey, as many people do, changes her opinions on things. And now is the leader of the Conservative Party. So from for this up and coming sort of young idealistic firebrand in the Liberal Democrats wanting to abolish the monarchy to now the leader of the Conservative Party. And that tells us that people change their views. Yes. So anytime yeah, anyone yeah. says, oh, when the young people get into power, they're going to believe this. No, people believe different things at 45 to what they believe at 21 yeah. and then yep. at 78. Yeah. Uh, so that's just a little instructive thing of Liz Truss. But Liz Truss comes in the Conservative Party, but very much with Kwasi Kwarteng, her, her Chancellor of the Exchequer or Treasurer, um, then have really, I think, extended what they see their vision for Britain is, which is a, a sort of particular economic model with very low taxes, hoping to stimulate the economy. Mm. So they did this mini budget and Kwasi Kwarteng like did these tax cuts, which almost got sort of gasps of, of shock in, in the house when, uh, of, of commons when they were, they were announced because they're sort of the most radical tax cuts since the early 1970s. But oh. what's fascinating is happening is you've got two things happening simultaneously. And this also tells a story about the global economy. You've got, Inflation going up. Yep. Uh, so we just talked about the economy with China, but what you've got since COVID um, and the stimulus that was released, if we go back to the financial crisis, you had stimulus released into the, the economy to try and make us grow when there's a problem. So imagine this is like antibiotics. Yep. It's yeah, like yep. you go to the doctor, you get antibiotics, that's stimulus. You print money, yep. more money, uh, you give it to people, they buy stuff, that gets the economy going. Yeah, yeah. Then, uh, you know, you have that at the GFC. When COVID happens, we have another whole bunch of stimulus um, because people couldn't work and, and all of a sudden people are paid and they're paid for not doing anything. This releases more money, prints more money. Mm. So it's like you were sick once, gave you antibiotics, you're sick again, we're going to give you antibiotics. But the problem is that antibiotics has a side effect and stimulus has a side effect of creating inflation. Mm. So what central banks, which are like the US Fed or the Bank of England or the Reserve Bank of Australia, they are separate to government and they try and control the speed of the economy. So one way that they see that 
inflation's getting high because the economy's moving too fast, they uh, then try and slow things down by raising interest rates. Yep, yep. Now, we've been in this really weird economic space you know, for a couple of decades now where it's been really hard to make things grow. Now, I would say part of that growth was also when you go back and look at that story of China and a lot of growth in the world happened because China was investing and building stuff and releasing money when the West didn't have money. Yep. Um, and, you know, but we've been in this very low growth period. So, one of the ways that they tried to fix that was making interest rates, what it was to borrow money, really low. Mm-hmm. So, you've got people now who are, say, in their late 30s, who all they've ever known is low interest rates. Yep. So you want to borrow money for a house, you want to borrow money for a car, your credit card, whatever, it's quite low. That's to encourage you to spend money. There's no impetus to save because mm. you just borrow money. Well, there was, I remember there was even some, was it last year or a couple of years ago, like some some European countries that were actually yes. charging interest to, yeah. to save. Like, yeah, I think like, Denmark it was like zero. I think Japan was really low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So- that was the, the 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 goal, but then what happened was inflation kicks off. You know, you got stimulus, and then particularly after COVID, inflation starts to go up. Yeah. So that means you're not earning any more, but stuff is costing more. Yes. Now, get back to the early '90s. So we had a small recession here in Victoria, and interest rates got up to like 17 percent or 14 percent. Mm. Now we're not in that place, but the difference between now and then is people have borrowed so much more money. Yeah. Uh, yeah okay, people okay. have just seen cheap money. Let's just borrow. So we've got this credit card generation in yeah. the world. And I don't just mean that as a slight against younger people. It's many ages. Yeah. And almost there's been like, there's been a little bit of a fantasy that we can just have what we want. Yeah, you want to go yeah. on that holiday. Everything has been discounted. You know, your Uber is discounted. Uh, Netflix does not make profit. Uh, Ryanair, uh, AirAsia, all these discount air, air travelers. It's all, it's all, it's all this economic model, which is now starting to fall over. Yeah. Okay. So. What happens is central banks realize that inflation's going up, so we need to slow this thing down. So the way that we do that is to raise interest rates. And so they've been sort of slowly doing that, aggressively doing that. The European Central Bank, Bank of England, mostly everyone follows the Fed uh, in the US. But what's fascinating happening in England is the Bank of England has been following what the Fed has been doing. There. So the Bank of England is trying to slow the economy down. Now, that's not popular no. because you, what you're effectively trying to do is crash the economy because economists would argue that actually you need to have recessions at certain times to reset. Yeah, okay. Um, to bring things back to normal so that, you know, prices and, and wages and, and you know, employment, all these things reset to a healthy level. Yeah. So, effectively what the Fed is doing, and this is another way that this is a really – because the Fed also is going to continually to sort of aggressively raise interest rates. Yep. This is why the next couple of months are hugely important in the world – is what the Fed is trying to do is effectively lead us into a recession. Now, what they will say is, oh, we want a soft landing. We want to do all this and not create a recession. But most people have the sense that this is going to create a recession. So you look at things like the great resignation of like, well, I can just leave my job and go get Mm -hmm. another. Mm -hmm. That may be true now in September, but come January, if employment goes up and we hit a recession, you're going to want to hold on to your job because you may not not have it. You may not have another job to go to. Yes. So, back to Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss's budget, what's fascinating is central banks raising interest rates, that is unpopular, but they're not elected, so they don't care. 
Then you've got politicians like the new, you know, the Conservative Party who who realise that they need to beat Labor. So they they realise in some senses that that's going to be unpopular. So what they do is all these tax cuts in order to stimulate the economy. Yeah. So Britain's in this okay. strange position, and I think it's instructive not just for Britain, but I think you're going to see this around the world. This is the dilemma for politicians and central banks: is that it's like it's like putting the accelerator on. And the brakes at the same, same time. time. The central banks are putting the brakes on and, and then the British government's putting the accelerator on. And as you and I know, that's how you do an epic donut standstill. Lots of as, smoke. As you and I know. We don't know that. We're just guessing. Yes, yes. Um, so, what's happened is the, the pound has absolutely plummeted to, to record low levels. Um, you're also seeing the euro plummet. The yen is plummeting. Um, so these are just, you know, and we could talk for hours about the economy, but but effectively, these are significant warning signs that some of the stuff's happening in the economy now in 2023 mm-hmm. uh, is going to start to play out. So you look at the energy crisis, war in Ukraine, uh, continued environmental extreme events. I think as we're recording, there's a significant hurricane heading towards uh, Florida, which will have significant, you know, obviously human effects, but also economic effects. Yeah. Um, and as someone said to what happens when, a massive hurricane hits hits Florida, but it takes you five months because of supply chain issues to replace all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, the story of the economy, I think, is going to be set in the next few months for what the next few years will look like. Yeah, well, okay. And for Britain, like so, yeah, it's just, and I think, yeah, that th- this this period is going to be intensified grey zone for the United Kingdom. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, on to Italy. Italia. So, we had the uh, electoral victory um, of a coalition of right-wing parties, which has gotten a lot of international coverage. Uh, Italian par- politics is somewhat chaotic at times and there's lots of different parties and people can sort of, you know, zone out because they don't understand it all. But it's sort of broken through into the international media because what's happened is there's a coalition of three right-wing parties. Um, one, the uh, Liga Nord, which um, is led by uh, Matteo Salvini, who's one of those sort of populists in the sort of like grouping of Jair Bolsonaro, Donald Trump, yeah, okay. Modi. Yep. Um, and that was a new sort of anti-establishment party that was created over the last few years as we've seen that electoral backlash across the world. He uh, did an alliance with an older right-wing party, um, the Forza Italia party with uh, Silvio Berlusconi, uh, who you know has been a, a figure in Italian politics for some time. Uh, and But they had an alliance this time with um, uh, another party called uh, the Fratelli uh, uh, is it Italia. I can't remember, the, the Brothers of Italy. And that's an older party which has sort of fascist roots. Okay. So the leader of that party has become the new Italian prime minister um, and it's, it's Italy's first female prime minister, Giorgia Malini. And she has replaced Matteo, uh, Draghi, uh, uh, Mario Draghi, who is the prime minister. Now, this is the first time Italy's had a, what is pe- some people are describing as a fascist prime minister since Mussolini in the war. Now, this is really interesting because what you're seeing is you're seeing a kind of different political tide in in Europe than other parts of the world. Some of the commentary often in the United States, in let's say the English-speaking world, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Britain, America, is that it's the older types who are voting for your Trumps Mm -hmm. or Brexit. 
Uh, but what we're seeing in continental Europe is that in places like France, um, those who voted for the far left and far right were actually the young and those voting for the centre, Macron, were actually older, the boomers. And so we just saw uh, a few weeks ago in in Italy, uh, sorry, in Sweden, um, really good, uh, I'm not saying good in a moral sense, but uh, uh, very strong electoral showing by the Sweden Democrats Party, which is another sort of neo-fascist party. So the fact that you're seeing the emergence already at this time of sort of neo-fascist or formerly fascist parties, however you want to describe them in Europe, is, is significant. Mario Draghi, the Italian Prime Minister, was very much the sort of centrist, uh, I think he was head of sort of the European Economic Commission or whatever, uh, sort of like centrist, neoliberal economist, and you're seeing this massive backlash against that. Now, is this the return of fascism? There was an interesting article in Le Monde uh, in the last couple of days where it said it's not the return of fascism. What Maloney is doing is creating almost this new kind of politics, which is sort of, interestingly, she, despite sort of being on this, it's called the far right, she's very supportive of Ukraine, very pro-NATO, unlike her two partners in yeah, her okay, partnership, okay. Berlusconi and Salvini. And... They said that Le Monde said this is a new kind of European politics, which is pro-NATO, um, pro sort of the state doing lots. Um, so that's not conservative. Um, but then also, you know, pushing back on what some people would describe as some of the woke issues like, yeah, okay. uh, you know, children and, and trans and those sort of issues. Um, so it's interesting seeing Europe heading in this direction. We haven't had the winter of discontent yet. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the European electoral map, um, when we sort of head into midpoint of next year, is going to be extremely interesting. Uh, but I think that this may be um, an, a showing that people are – one point, so to make a sub-point on that. What's interesting is <coughs> – uh, her two partners, Berlusconi and Salvini, got a lot less lower votes than they were expecting. Salvini was previously seen as the anti-establishment figure, but now people are turning on him within a few years mm. and Maloney. So part of the message is to, to your former anti-establishment people who were popular three or four years ago, there are new figures who possibly could overtake. And again, too, this sort of brings us to the midterms. Um, in the US that you're seeing sort of like people like uh, Rupert Murdoch who backed Donald Trump now sort of moving his support to a, a figure like DeSantis who's the governor of um, Florida and what people may think could be a battle between Biden and Trump in 2024 actually could be sort of the next rung of these people and an intensification of these trends yeah, okay. is sort of where possibly I think the Italian election is showing a bigger story for what is relevant yeah, yeah, to the yeah. world. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, next up, we've got Iran. Uh, Iran. Iran uh, is currently in the midst of some significant protest movements. Um, so what happened, uh, again, Iran is an incredibly important country in the world, a very large country, has uh, tremendous um, significance in its geopolitical position, uh, one of the world's largest producers of oil, um, and, uh, you know, probably the sort of leading country in Shia Islam, but also significant uh, influence in beyond just the Shia countries and in, in the Muslim world, and has sort of been involved in a sort of battle with, you know, the West for some time, mm -hmm. particularly since 1979 when there was the um, sort of uh, Islamic fundamentalist uh, uh, revolution occurred in Iran. 
and you had this sort of quite austere um, form of Islam uh, with the sort of Ayatollahs take over the country. And so what happened this week uh, or in the last couple of maybe last 10 days was that a young woman from the Kurdish regions, uh, Mahasa Amini, came into Tehran and um, was wearing her hijab, her veil, loosely. And this is often what young women will do who are rebelling a little bit in Iran. They wear their their uh, sort of uh, veil a, back, bicket, bat, a, a bit back on their head, showing okay. the front of the hair. But there, there is a, a, a group that is called the Morality Police, and they took her into custody for immoral, immoral dress, um, and she was beaten in custody and lost her life. Yeah. Now, this sparked a significant protest movement, uh, which began with you know, a lot of young women and women leading this against the mandatory enforcement of the hijab. Um, but then it sort of coalesced with a bunch of other um, uh, issues in Iran from uh, the, the nature of the government full stop to the rising inflation we've been talking about in this, the energy crisis that's happening mm-hmm. in places like uh, uh, Iran, uh, in Ukraine, but also to the ongoing sanctions um, yeah, okay. a- against uh, I- Iran because of their support of different terrorists and terrorist groups like Hezbollah. Um, so this is a really, really crucial time for Iran. Um, and you know which way Iran goes will have an effect on the rest of the world. Um, you know, if the Iranian government falls, um, what kind of government will replace? You know, there is a lot of the West who will be in, you know hoping that the the government of Iran falls and is re- is replaced by a more liberal and democratic government. Whether that will happen, we're not sure. We saw what happened in the Arab Spring uh, in 2011 when you know there was a significant uprising against you know, particularly President. Uh, Mubarak in in Egypt, and there was a lot of liberal Democrats and and young people got involved, but then eventually the Muslim Brotherhood ended up taking power. Uh, so you know what is going to happen in Iran is really key. Also, uh, if you look at what happened with food, you know what's happening with food prices in the world at this time. The food prices in the Middle East went through a crisis in 2011, which was part of the factors which led to the Arab Spring. We're seeing that happening again in the world. So what this is going to politically mean for Iran, this has implications for Israel, this has implications for Iraq, Syria, all the countries around it, for the United States. Yes. So yeah. this is this is hugely important um, for the direction of Iran uh, at this point in time. And we you know for those who would like to hear more about the church in Iran, um, go back and listen to our uh, interview with David Yaganatsa from a couple of weeks ago. But hugely significant for Iran, for the Iranian people, for the Iranian diaspora. But through the lens of this, hugely important for the geopolitical um, sort of uh, you know global order um, and another really massive thing that's happening this October. Yeah, yeah. And just a, just a thought, like you kind of mentioned it there a bit, like in, in all of these things, like I think the, like some of these nations we've talked about are all like big yes. nations and significant contributors to the global economy or mm. food supply chain, all this kind of stuff. So it's almost like there's this, these countries are facing significant crises. Yes. But also what's the flow and effect of that to, yes. uh, like there, there is, I think a place like Yemen. Like, yes, yes. what's the flow and effect to these other places as mm. well? That actually, um, these do these come become catalysts for something bigger as well? Well, often what you see in smaller countries is proxy wars and struggles. Yeah. So Yemen, you know, in many ways, there's a proxy war between the Saudi, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, and then you know, Iran with the Houthi rebels. Um, and so Yemen becomes this battlefield between the two. Yeah. 
in some ways, that's also Ukraine. You know, Ukraine is is a battlefield between NATO and and Russia, and also Iran, and you know, some might even say China. Um, and so you see these countries where these conflicts play out. It, Lebanon, which has gone through tremendous suffering, mm. like incredibly mm. suffering in terms of economic. A lot of the banks in in Beirut have been shut because people are trying to get their money out because of inflation, food costs. You go back to the terrible explosion that happened in the port of Lebanon. Lebanon's, um, you know, was was a much more stable country, but because of you know, things like Hezbollah, what happens in, in, in Palestine and different places like that, you know, it creates destabilization for other countries, you know, and, and you think of, you know, us down under Australia, New Zealand, you know, these things mm-hmm. have flow-on effects, yeah, what yeah. happens in China, Australia's wealth and, and, and in many ways New Zealand's wealth is we've, we've gotten a lot of wealth from the commodities boom and, and agriculture and stuff and dairy products that have gone into other countries in the world that has a flow-on effect to us, currency yes. fluctuations, yeah, yeah. energy, yeah. all of this has tremendous uh, flow on effects. So, you know, to sort of summarize all of this, um, you know, gray zone, maybe we've sort of been entering into gray zone, but October is a little bit of a turning point. I don't know exactly where all this goes, yep. but what I do know is we're in the midst of even more significant changes, uh, which means that normal as we understood it is not coming back anytime soon. Um, and perhaps we're just moving to what the world's always been. Um, you know, this is the normal of the mm. world. Uh, but this is a time to be praying. This is a time to expect the material conditions in the world to change yeah. and disruption to be normative for some period. Um, but, yeah, be praying in October for the world. And yeah. I, I just I just think as well, you know, on Sunday we, in our service, um, you know, really ran it in a way that was outward. Yeah. You know, we had part of the interview with David Yekanatsa. We we did a little extra interview and we sh- shared that in our service and talked about what was happening in Iran. Uh, and we had different elements to the service. Brits, um, uh, one of our team, she at the end got us to stand mm. and actually say out loud together as the entire congregation of a nation in the world that we were – uh, it was on our heart that we wanted yeah, to pray yeah. for and we faced outwards, you know, yeah. to the back of the auditorium, to the sides of the auditorium. So I think at this moment after coming through COVID and, and all the disruption, we can, fa- we can f- uh, face inward and there is internal work that God wants to do in sure. us and personal renewal leads to corporate change. But there's also, I think, a, a, a key to get people's eyes bigger, even beyond the culture yeah, wars yeah. to what's happening geopolitically in our yeah. world. And I think leaders need to be have a global vision at this time. Yeah, that's good. Um, is there anything else before we wrap up? Or happy to happy to oh, close us off there? I think <laughs> I think uh, we have given them more than enough uh, <laughs> details and and you know intricacies of Italian politics. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Mark, for um, exploring that for us and um, your diligence in keeping keeping up to date with what's happening around the world. Um, but yeah, encouragement to you guys. Please continue to contend and pray and intercede um, for our world, for these nations, um, for your nation. Um, if you would like to uh, find out a bit more, um, support us, you can head to rebuilders.co um, and uh, we're going to do subscriber chats. Uh, we'll explore some of these things a bit further so you can uh, sign up to uh, the mailing list there to get those as well. So anyway, thank you, Mark. Um, miss you, Liddy, and uh, we'll catch you next time.